As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. This is a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? Always good. Let's get right into it, Mark. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We have a feature game this week, which is Starfares of Catan. Not quite. Not anymore. Sorry. Catan. Starfares. You got to respect the branding, Walker. I'm so sorry. This is a big deal. So, Mark, we're getting close to the end of the year. We're starting to see all these top 10 games of 2019 popping up. I'm sure we'll do something later on in a couple of weeks. Yes, it is, the, is... it is the only top 10 or only listing that we do on a regular basis because generally we do not find it illustrative. It's true. I think it's going to be... Anyway, I'm not going to go on about it. Well, Most no, our, our year-end show is really good. It you is know, good. We, we get dressed up. We have a whole bunch of special invited guests. It's true. This year, there's going to be Pharrell. There's going to be Queen Latifah. And there's... we do our song, right? Our end-of-the-year song. Where it's we, a big like... gala. Now, it's granted, these cool. are the invited guests. They don't tend to show up, which is their loss, but... So, this is also end-of-the-year means Kickstarters are usually like a year. They take a year. So, this is where all the big starters are coming across on Kickstarter. So, we're seeing some fairly big projects come on. So, take a look on your local Kickstarter channels. So, Mark, what did you play this week? For games play, I'm, I'm, I I'm feel bad. I, I've got one game on my list this week, Mark. I had something to add to this part. It's sad. Oh, that's what it was. I was going to mention the fact that I've been working on this upcoming secret project that I'm going to not allude to and so people will be suspenseful and and looking eagerly towards it. So you contradicted yourself about five times in that single I, know, I don't really great? know what. <laughs> <laughs> so you may or may not be working on something that people may or may not should be looking forward to but you're definitely not going to say anything about it. Exactly. Understood. Okay. I played some more Street Masters Aftershock. I've been having a blast with it. Street Masters is one of my favorite co-op games of the past few years. I just wanted to comment on the design work that went into their Redemption expansions, because in the Redemption expansions, all the bosses get their own playable decks as player characters. And you see some of the Saddler's design work really shine through here because they reserve some of their more intricate, not necessarily more complicated, but more intricate and component-heavy work in the Redemption characters. I I think on the supposition, reasonable enough that these characters are going to be played by somewhat more experienced players. And the one I played was Mac, who is very clearly the boss from Double Dragon. There was the Twin Tigers expansion of the first arc of Street Masters, which was very clearly Double Dragon. And the boss there is Mac. And he is a machine gun toting gangster, but he has this interesting mechanism when played as a player character of mercy tokens. He's He seems to have internalized when he's playing as a hero that he shouldn't just shoot everyone in the head, that that would be bad. That would not be a good way to approach doing things. And so he has these mercy tokens, and while he has mercy tokens available, he's not able to shoot people. But there are various things that he can do, like he might attack somebody, and if it doesn't, it doesn't knock them out, he loses a mercy token because he starts getting frustrated. And when all his mercy tokens are gone... Then he just starts going nuts. Then it's time to time to let loose. It's time to let loose. But then there are also all, the, all these other cards that make you tempted to take Mercy Tokens back. For example, he has a Chokehold card called Non-Lethal Takedown, which is two dice, but four dice if you take a Mercy Token back. So you're, you're constantly in this push and pull, sometimes literally, 
with respect to how the mercy tokens are working. I had a blast with Mac. I thought he was a great character. I thought he was very, very well designed. And so in a game with dozens of characters, literally, I really do like a lot of the, the work done in the bosses. Huey almost always ends up playing a boss. I don't know what it is. He gravitates towards them inexorably. And he's been putting a number of them through their paces as well. But suffice to say that I've been, I've been continuing to enjoy myself with the Street Masters content, setting up a solo game for a quick 40 minutes or so, because that's how long it takes for a solo game of Street Masters, showing it to new people. It's been winning some new friends. I definitely have to give it a try, because I'm thinking back to some of the cool bosses we played against, and I would definitely want to give them a whirl. Didn't they have the giant four-armed guy from Mortal Kombat? Didn't they have him as a boss as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd give that guy a try. That seems like fun. Yeah, he was available in the first wave. He was available in the first redemption pack. And so some of those cards got changed, actually, in the update. So Nice. There you go. All right, so my one game that I did play was alluded to in our in one of my yet fantastic unboxing videos. Check it out if you haven't seen it. And it is Big City 20th Anniversary Edition. Mark, you saw these buildings. They look amazing. It definitely feels like a 20-year-old game. In the ilk of, they had this fantastic idea, but it just, it doesn't end well. Like, there's, the ending is once you fill the entire map up, or, and the trading of the cards seems a little odd. But I think overall, it's still, I still had a lot of fun. What you're doing is, like I said, in the unboxing, it's much like Chinatown. You're trading these numbered cards back and forth, and you're trying to get these you know, territories that are close together. So you can build these big buildings and get them close to other buildings. And you create these interesting combos while you're creating this cool looking city. But then the end game is weird and it, and it's terrible at two players. It just is a little wonky. Apparently there's some two player variants. I didn't see it right away in the book. I'll have to go back and take a look, but with the straight up rules does not play well to players. Other than that, love it. I played Big City a couple times, uh, probably about 10 years ago, closer to when it was released, but it was, an, it was a somewhat older game even then. And I do recall the end game being a bit wonky, because at a certain point, you've built all that you can plausibly build, and then you're just trying to hose everyone else and deny them the ability to build anything neat, and it just doesn't end in a satisfying way. But something to be stressed, even though I was the one uh, inexpertly wielding the camera for your unboxing video... The buildings in the new 20th, 20th anniversary edition are drop-dead gorgeous. The level of detail is really very, very perfect. It's not insanely detailed. It's just stylized and representative enough that you can get a lot of really solid character even when you're sitting at a table and you're at a couple feet removed from the components. It's just They've just done a marvelous job. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. They've got the expansion. you get hospitals. and Anyway, long story short, it's a very interesting game. Has a little bit of take that in it where you can sort of see what people are going for or what sort of uh, numbers are left. I can see where there's a lot more to it than I think off the very first plane because you get these factory or park cards which you can cover up certain territories without having the numbers and you suddenly make cards in people's hands completely useless, which sort of like messes up their game. So that might be interesting. Much it looks like, uh, it gave me the feeling of there's this old game that I picked up called Ants. It had a fantastic premise. It had really cool gameplay, but then the end game was just a mess. Like it just sort of they much like you know cinema of of modern day where they have this fantastic idea, start filming, but they just don't know how to end it, and and that's what I feel like Big City's like. Played some more Wavelength. I mentioned this primarily because immediately after hitting stop on the recording last week when we were talking about holiday gaming and what constitutes a good filler game, I was kicking myself because I forgot to talk about Wavelength. It was in my notes, talking about how Wavelength was, uh, you know, currently probably my favorite large number, easy, easily accessible, uh, immediately compelling group game, and yet didn't talk about it at all. Had another fabulous game of Wavelength. Got to learn about one of the clue givers very strong feelings about Justin Timberlake. She feels very strongly about Justin Timberlake. The wavelength of the particular spectrum we had was from strong to weak. And we had the hint Justin Timberlake. And I assumed that this was in reference to a particular song or song lyric with which I was unfamiliar, referencing these words in particular. No, no, no. She just felt that he was a very strong individual, that his career had been strong, that his positions had been strong, that his acting was strong. So, so just, <laughs> also worth noting, uh, on the topic of celebrities, Wavelength, we don't have, it's not a whole lot of cultural references, but when they do come up, it's interesting. One category that's come up a couple of times is 
uh, good actor to bad actor. And both times that this wavelength has come up, the person decided to clue Nicolas Cage, which has caused everyone else on their team to not know what to do because Nick Cage is, number one, synonymous with bad acting, and number two, the recipient of Academy Award for acting. So you have to wonder, like, which Nick Cage are we talking about? And are we talking about Mandy or are we talking about all the stuff he's done lately except for Mandy? Anyway... Remains a blast. Absolutely love Wavelength. It is now uh, the go-to standard for we've got a lot of people. Let's 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 play a fun social game. Uh, and I feel very, very stupid for not having mentioned it last week during the topic. And for this, I sincerely apologize. True. And it's odd. It's the one It's the one game I've been thinking about lately where I'm thinking about bringing this to, like, family occasions and how to explain it so it's easier. You know what I mean? Like, going through a rules explanation in my head, it's been the one game that's been coming up in my memory over and over again. It's kind of odd. Well, the physicality of the device really helps a lot. Exactly, yeah. Just, you know, showing them the device saying, you know, this is going to move and and we're going to ask a moral type question and you're going moral to... Moral type question? Well, well, it could... The one the one time we had a moral type question, we learned that, uh, number one, the clue giver thought that shoplifting was among the very worst things that you could do. Yes. And we also learned that everyone else at the table thought that shoplifting wasn't really a big deal and we learned this in the basement of a game store. Well, I'm not so... I... That's, it is true. Well, not some morality. I'm just, I didn't know a, a better word to say, you know, that it's going to be someone's well, opinion. a series of judgments. Maybe someone's opinion, I sure, guess. You know, sure. someone's, you know, inner psyche, you know, when you, they're going to bring up a question and you're going to have to think, figure out what they feel about this to be psychic. subject. Yeah. What else did you play, Mark? I played Warfighter, the private military contractor card game. So Warfighter has recently released its third wave of expansions. Warfighter as a product line now has four different base sets and a sum total of well over 100 expansions uh, spread out over uh, all of them. You have Modern, you have World War II, you have Modern Shadow War for stealthy missions, and you have Modern Private Military Contractor for running your own private military contractor in the immediate aftermath of the uh, the second Iraq War. So there's a game that beats out Cthulhu Wars for a number of expansions? Ab- oh, absolutely. In terms of sheer number of expansions, yes, Warfighter definitely wins. It doesn't help that the Board Game Geek database, excellent though it may be, doesn't line up with the actual numbering system that Warfighter is using. And it also certainly doesn't help that the Warfighter numbering system of the expansions already is somewhat messed up because some of the different product lines have numbering systems that run up against each other. So, for example, Warfighter Modern expansion number 39, maybe that's an expansion to Warfighter Modern, or maybe it's an expansion to Shadow War, or maybe it's an expansion to uh, to Warfighter Private Military Contractor. Who's to say? World War II is the only product line where the numbering has been consistent, but even then, the board game database isn't isn't too excellent on that score, and even then it might or might not correspond to what online board game retailers might have in terms of their numbering system. It's a big mess. Anyway, so Warfighter, the private military contractor card game, is something I wanted to try because Dan Verson Games, which is the publishing company run by Dan Verson to publish the games designed by Dan Verson, named Dan Verson Games, tends to specialize in what I call fun paperwork, which is uh, a game genre that has... My enthusiasm for it has been sorely tested by the over over glut of paperwork nature games and over over excessive nature of a lot of legacy type games. My favorite of their games is probably Thunderbolt Apache Leader, where you're running close air support over an extended campaign. You have to track things like the stress of your pilots and whether various machines have been downed and whether you have to replace various things. And you have to buy the specific munitions that your planes are going to be running and or your your helicopters. Anyhow, sometimes I'm in very much in the mood for that. Warfighter, despite the fact that it's their more prominent, their most prominent product line, doesn't do that. You don't track soldiers from campaign to campaign, except through some optional rules that not a whole lot of people do. Mostly, it feels like a minis game in which you have a point allotment, and you buy your squads, and you buy cool toys from them, and you run them through a mission. But speaking personally, one of my primary appeals for Warfighter, therefore, is trying out different builds, trying out different stuff, trying out different specialties of soldiers. This one specializes in hand-to-hand combat. This one specializes in medium-range combat. This one's a shotgunner. This one's a sniper, but nonetheless very mobile. This one has a lot of explosives, etc., etc., etc. There's lots of different things you can try. So I was a little bit leery when cracking open Warfighter, the private military contractor version, that the options were very, very limited in comparison. Because of the way the system works, you can level up different soldiers over the course of different missions from week to week. But as a result, they have to provide different versions of every soldier. And as a result, in the base game, you have six soldiers total. And that's it. And yeah, they change when they level up, 
but your options are further hampered by the fact that you need to have somebody at a certain level for, for a variety of, of mechanical reasons I'm not going to go into. So in effect, you're obliged to buy a high-level soldier, and then you're going to run out of points to buy anything else, and then you end up with a couple of squaddies. Your build options are so narrow, and they're all just going to be running relatively uninspired loadouts. Maybe this one is going to have an M4 carbine. Maybe this other person is going to have an M16A2 carbine. Uh, there's not a whole lot of difference of that in the context of, of the actual game. And so I really, really felt that this version of Warfighter was just the version that took out all the stuff that I liked. So I strongly, strongly disliked this version of Warfighter. It did nothing for me. And it immediately made me want to return to the version of Warfighter that I have, where even in the base game, without any expansions, you're going to have so much more variety that is available to you as compared to this PMC version. I, I really don't understand who this was made for. I think this was probably made for the person that really only likes the fun paperwork aspect of DVG games, but in which case they shouldn't be playing Warfighter. That's not the system for them. There's so many other excellent games for them, even if they want to represent these kinds of theaters. But I guess if you desperately want to do small arms, I don't know. It it, I, it was a complete bust. I'm not particularly interested in now uh, expanding out. It's one of the reasons why I wasn't curious about the World War II version. There was just less variety in the kinds of weaponry available on small squad bases for largely historical reasons. And so I looked at that and said, eh, I don't really feel like getting into the system again with a smaller variety set, and sure enough, this is exactly what's happening. So I found my Warfighter of choice. It's the original product line with all its, you know, dozens of expansions and what have you, and that gives me lots of variety even in the base game, so that's what I'm going to stick with, and really, in hindsight, I should have known better, but that was my experience with the PMC version of Warfighter. Also played the Shipwreck Arcana, which is a very, very simple cooperative deduction game. It's very much in the same kind of space as Hanabi by Antoine Boza, who we talked about a couple weeks ago. Hanabi's probably my favorite design of Antoine Boza. But the Shipwreck Arcana is a lighter and in many ways more accessible co-op deduction game. What happens is there are these four cards that they get revealed. Each of them have a condition attached. Like, your two tiles are four or more apart. Or your two tiles are separated are separated by one, either plus one or negative one. And so what happens is you have the you have these random tiles that you pull from a bag, and you play one of them, and then your, your colleagues then try to guess what the remaining tile you have in your hand based on the plays that you've made over the course of this turn and past turns. And there's a time pressure involved, and sometimes you have to make a wild guess because of the time pressure. And there's a number of other interesting things and powers. It was nice. It was very cute. It was very simple. I have my serious concerns about the level of luck sometimes you get a pull that just you're not going to be very informative and sometimes you get a pull where the perfect information falls into your lap but to a certain extent i have to remind myself that was true of hanabi as well if you start a game of hanabi and nobody's sporting any ones well then the game's going to stall for a while while you try to tread water if the fives all come out at the beginning well that's a bit of a problem in and of itself as well anyway so i'm not sure how much the luck factor is going to factor into it but uh, another virtue of the Shipwreck Arcana is that it is very fast. We're talking about 20 to 30 minutes. And you even have rules for people just dropping out in the middle or coming in later on. So, Oh, nice. Seems like a flexible system. There have been a bunch of small expansions because it's just about special cards. You can always introduce more of those. And I'm looking forward to trying more of that. But so far, my early experiences have been very pleasant. And finally, I played Yggdrasil Chronicles. This has been a year of redevelopments and re-releases of Euro games. So, the, you know, Kalos 1303, Marco Polo 2, Con Bugaloo, and now Yggdrasil Chronicles. Yggdrasil was a co-op game by Cédric Lefebvre, published by uh, Ludonat about 10 years ago. And it was a very, very, very hard co-op. I liked how hard it was, but I didn't really like the overall game flow. And it didn't do much for me, even though, as I've, as I've commented before, if there's a game about the end of the world in Norse mythology, I am there and I will definitely be willing to give it a shot. Yggdrasil Chronicles is kind of the spiritual successor to Yggdrasil, but it's very mechanically dissimilar. And it has this tree. Imagine Everdell, the tree of Everdell, and imagine that's the game board. And initially, when I heard about that, I thought it was going to be that this was going to be seriously problematic because Everdell is very difficult to play with more than a couple of players because the tree has to sit off to the side and then you you can't sit in a circle around it or anything like that. It has a very definite facing. I was concerned very much for the usability of Adrizal Chronicles. Now I've only played it solo so far. But so far I, I I'm reasonably pleased with how usable the entire tree is because when I'm interacting with the space that is across 
the trunk from where I'm sitting, it was still perfectly fine. So I could imagine sitting people in a circle around the, the Tree of Victors of Chronicles. I wouldn't want people to be sitting on short short seats or people who are not particularly short. I'm uh, slightly under six feet. I say this, this, this is actually very important. Sorry, minor sidebar. This is something that I've, I've noticed before. I first noticed this in high school. People shorter than me, men shorter than me, will insist that they're six feet tall. I am not six feet tall. I, I don't really care one way or the other. I just find it so striking that there's this threshold that people want to get to. It's like, oh, I'm six feet. It's like, no, if you're shorter than me or if you're my height, you're not six feet tall because I'm not. The government of Ontario is under the impression that I'm six feet, but that has to be because of my bouffant when I last got my <laughs> driver's license. <laughs> anyway, suffice to say, the top level of the tree, because you're playing in, in Yggdrasil Chronicles, you're playing on Yggdrasil and you're moving figures around on Yggdrasil, you might have difficulty seeing the top of it. And I had some concerns about the iconography, but halfway through... The first playing, I had no problems with it whatsoever. So I, I was pleasantly surprised with how usable it is. My biggest concern, though, is that it is vastly too easy, particularly in the context of the fact that in Yggdrasil Chronicles, you win by running up the clock. It's just a question of surviving a siege until these events that happen in a, in a random order that you can't really control for too much happen, and if you've survived up to that point, you win. That didn't leave me particularly inspired, and I'm concerned that that, in conjunction with its relative ease, will put a serious damper on my enthusiasm for it. Now, that having been said, it is a scenario-based game where there's a series of linked scenarios because everything's got to have a campaign. But in this case, it's about the Ragnarok, so I'm willing to forgive them. The first, the first scenario, for example, is about Baldur's murder. I have never been able to play out Baldur's murder. This, this, that could be fun. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm eager to give it another shot. The usability was better than I thought, but the victory conditions were worse than I thought. It was very, very thematically engaging in terms of different giants doing different things and different magical artifacts coming into play. So it definitely appeals to me on a thematic level, but I, I can imagine that for people who are unengaged and uninspired by Norse mythology, I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot here for you. The tree is a visual gimmick. It kind of impacts gameplay, but I don't think you're going to want to really struggle through it if the concept of running around running around as Heimdall and Tyr is, is not immediately appealing to you. So that was my initial experience with Idrisil Chronicles and probably more to follow on that later. So was it like, is it a reprint of the older game or no. is it just reworking or is it? No, it's, it's the same, it's the same theme and the same designer and same overall graphical style, but mechanically they're very dissimilar. All right. Completely different then. Pretty much. All right. And those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. My first news thing is just the Tokyo game market finished up 2019. I'm not going to go into the plethora of games that were there. Go to Board Game Geek and check out their thread. They have pictures of everything that's there. I'm sure there's something that appeals to everybody because there's all sorts of fun and interesting stuff there. That is the Tokyo Game Market 2019. Got some news from the, the world of rulebook writing. A particular bugbear of mine, and this has been going on for several years, is the is when rulebooks will say, for the sake of readability and simplicity, we will use the male pronoun exclusively. It's like, you go to the bother of writing this note, you know that writing the male pronoun exclusively is somewhat strange and exclusive, but you decide to put in this to put in this note, and so now suddenly everything's okay. This might have fly, flown 10 years ago, and this is particularly true a lot of some publishers. So Matigo has been doing this for a long time. And whenever I see it in a rulebook, it just turns me right off. Well, in the past, uh, and I think this might be partly a language problem, because I've had this difficulty when talking with people whose first language is French or whose first language is German, talking about pronouns. They don't really understand. So gender is treated differently in, in different languages. And Matigo in the past has been very defensive. But I, I have some good news from the world of the internet, one of those rarest of occasions where somebody called out Matigo online and said, this is not cool, you should stop doing this. And Madigo responded saying, yeah, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to, we're not going to have this, this, this format. We're going to use singular they, or we're just going to use you or your in a, a more discursive style. So to avoid using the male pronoun entirely. And anytime something like that happens on the internet, I just want to call it out because it's a, it's a shining, 
beacon of hope for the fact that maybe humanity isn't doomed. So, And also, I want to give credit where credit is due. Good on you, Medigo. It is very difficult when called out online to respond with grace and to make a positive change for the better, but they have done this, and I'm looking forward to new Medigo rulebooks not angering me before I even start learning how to play the game. That would be nice. Well, Hobby World is the company that puts out Spyfall. I love Spyfall. They're putting out a new game called SpyCon, where everyone is a spy, and who knows who's wearing what costume. You must figure it out. And that is what SpyCon is going to be all about. So, that's about all the news I got on that. It's just that I love Spyfall. I love that this is being brought out by the same people, and I'm sure it has the same sort of art template. And and the, from what I've read so far, it looks very interesting and very fun. Is it going to have the problem whereby, in order to play it properly, you need to know what all the locations are? I hope not. Yeah, that is the one. That is the. Uh, I think the only. I think that is the only shortcoming of of Spyfall. I think the there are other that... shortcomings, but it's definitely the biggest problem. So there's news on the digital version of Warhammer Underworlds. I mention this primarily because, although I don't normally like digital implementations, I don't really have a local scene for Warhammer Underworlds. And the trailer definitely shows that the they're, they're not pulling any punches with the graphics. This is fully animated, fully digitized, all the units and all their bloody grimdark glory doing massive attacks and not just sort of, you know, the dice animation, but instead everything's being rendered. And the early access begins in January 28. And I'm very keen to see what they're going to be doing with it. A primary concern for me is their pricing model. Is this going to be the kind of thing where you give them a whack of cash for the base game and they have to buy every other expansion army and then buy card expansion packs or blah, 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 blah. If it's a reasonable price and you just get access to everything right away, I might be inclined to jump in. But if you're at all curious, you can check out the trailer for Warhammer Underworlds. Early access in I, I January. One hundred percent, the same shortcomings. I really hope that they do this properly. Yeah, and make all the cards available for a single price. But we'll see. They need to. There, you know. That being said, you know they're in this to make money. So yes, of course. Yeah. But but we are consumers talking about the conditions under which we will give them money and under the conditions sure. under which we will not. As long as it's not like a a membership. As I'm seeing that more and more. In, oh like, sure, mon- monthly fees. We'll see how that goes. Anyway, my news is Simon. They have a new game. And no, it's not Night of the Living Dead, blah, blah, blah. Guess what, Mark? Another zombie game, giant miniatures, whole bunch of buckets of plastic by Simon. Counting down to zombies. Yeah, nobody cares. What I really care about is they have another game called Airship City. This is a game from Japan. It's already out. This is the weird part. Like, I went to the Simon. I went to the Simon website, and it's... They don't mention it anywhere that it's already been released in Japan. They don't mention the designer. They don't mention anything except that this is a game that they're putting out. They do have huh. they do have the the publisher's logo there beside theirs, but other than that, you wouldn't have any idea that this game's already been released in Japan. But anyway, the artwork is by Satari Shibata. I'm destroying these names. This is a game from uh, Masaki Suga. It's called Air. Airship City, and it looks fantastic. The art is amazing, and I'm just looking forward to giving it a try. My final bit of news is there's been some development about Spheres of Influence, which is one of Walker's preferred games for reasons passing understanding. It's been out of print for a few years, and people have been having difficulty getting a hold on it. Well, the designer Josh Lamont, no relationship to the Fragor Brothers, has announced that not only is there going to be a Kickstarter for a reprint in the new year, there's also going to be an expansion with uh, a relatively small box expansion with just new cards, a couple of new mechanisms, but also just more cards and some asymmetric faction powers uh, for a series of influence in the new year. So if you like a series of influence because you're wrong like Walker, you can... Uh, you can. I'm the first one to jump in and say that it's not the greatest game of all time. I'd say they do a very interesting spin of what is the normal Risk template. And the expansion... In that they double down on many of Risk's exactly. problems? Exactly. And they did hint around the, the expansion in the in the original Kickstarter. Like, they sent you one card and it sort of said, you know, this is what we're thinking about doing for the expansion. Right, so but that was years was, ago. It was many, many years ago. Yeah. And the and that's a yet another game where the graphic design is, is so striking and looks amazing. Well, there's going to be more of it. So... If the, the the timeline is to be believed, recently it was it was somewhat announced that it was going to be in Jan- hopefully January or February of next year. Anyway, so f- 
I'm just going to jump in. Spheres of Influence, the interesting hook of that is that everyone gets so many actions a turn. So you're making this deck of three cards for everybody. You mix it up, and when you flip over your card, you get to do your action. But as you take over these oil refineries, you get to add more cards into this deck. So you're getting more actions. And I just thought that was a very interesting mechanism. Spheres of Influence. Check out, actually, yeah. Hey, check out my review video oh, of wow. Spheres of Influence. It, I actually did a, a video review. That's no, hilarious. I know, I know. It's just I thought that I thought I, that the consensus totally was forgot. that we we don't talk about our former lives. Oh, was it? Oh, I'm sorry. I no, just, no, no, I, no. This is not, not, not an editorial policy, just no, for good taste. Gotcha. It just occurred. Just, <laughs> when I was talking, I was like, wait a second. I think I did. Anyway, moving on. My last bit is Flotilla. I've talked about Flotilla from WizKids. It's now available. The has two designers, J.B. Howell and Michael Maselik. Anyway, long story short, Mark, there's two phases in this game. It seems just very... Two! Two! Two phases? Right, like... That's twice as many phases! I don't mean, like, two phases. I just mean there is... what I have written down. Where is it here? There's the sink side, where you're, you're, you know, you know, the world's gone to pot. Post-apocalyptic, you're floating on this thing, and the sink phase is you know you're doing all these divers underwater stuff and everything else and then at a certain point of the game you just flip everything over the board flips over all of your tokens flip over your little tableau thing flips over and now you're on the sky side and you know you're doing you know stuff in the air and anyway that part seems very interesting i'm looking forward to giving it a try and that is flotilla from WizKids. that is the new and why it doesn't matter on to our feature game of the week, which is Catan Starfarers. Mark, tell us about this. Okay, so Catan. <laughs> it was first published as Set- The Settlers of Catan, and now it's just been rebranded as Catan. Oh, do, oh, do tell. Yes. And we're going to be talking, I think, a little bit about, well, what we probably still think of as settlers in our, in our heart of hearts. But it has spawned many expansions uh, the city, Cities and Knights of Catan, uh, Seafarers of Catan, which was an expansion to base Settlers of Catan or Catan Simplicitor, as you like. But then there are also these standalone Catan games. They're not expansions, but nonetheless have a variety of mechanical similarities to the base Catan game. Starfarers of Catan was one of those variants. It was released in 1999. And it's been put out by Cosmos, just like pretty much everything that uh, Catan has for for a very long time. And it was also designed by Klaus Tuber. Klaus Tuber, who designed Base Catan, has designed most, if not all, of the sort of standalone expansions. Now, not all of the standalone versions I enjoy. I was very disappointed, for example, in the Game of Thrones version. But a lot of them are really cute. Uh, Settlers of the Stone Age has some virtues to it. I'm a fan of the Incan version. It does some cute stuff. There's a lot of, of, of mechanically interesting stuff. I was also a big, big supporter of the card game versions of Catan. There's the, I don't even know what it's called at the moment, but it was originally called the, the Settlers of Catan card game for two players. Then there was also Starship Catan, which was kind of like the two-player version of Starfarers of Catan. Yeah, so it gets very complicated very quickly. Go check Wikipedia. I Hopefully there's a whole bunch of, of links there, but I'm not going to go through the entire history. But suffice to say that for a long time, the Starfarers of Catan was heralded as the longest and by many, the best of the Catan games. And it was released in 99. Well, this year, Cosmos released a new version of Starfarers of Catan, now called Catan colon Starfarers, also by Klaus Tuber, with some mechanical changes that we'll get into later. But fundamentally, it's still the same game. Walker, why don't you give us an helpful summary about what one does in... Man, I'm going to be defining unhelpful, Mark. This is going to be a good one. All right. In Starfarers, sorry, in Catan, (laughs) Starfarers. We're we're probably going to make that mistake again. You're going to be figuring out how to be scoring one or two points every turn because this is a race to 15 points and the game is not going to last for 15 turns. To do this, you're going to be upgrading your ship, making them more shooty, better at trade, and you can even make them faster, but don't waste your time doing that because if you wait just a few turns, you're going to be able to teleport anywhere you like. Catan. Starfares. All right. So why don't we start by talking about what we don't like about base Catan? What? Oh, okay. Do you think that might be a helpful way to frame some of this? We can. I have turned dozens of people off base Catan by saying, uh, you have fun playing Catan, you roll 2d6 and that's your turn. Roll 2d6. Pass the dice, roll 2d6. And then they say, uh, uh, 
and then they think about it and they realize that's all you're doing and they never play Catan again. <laughs> the The problem that I have with base Catan on that topic isn't really so much about that's all you're doing on your turn because if you're just, you know, passing around quickly enough, some turns, some turns are bigger than others and that's fine. That might even lead to the fabled flow that we prize so highly, certainly you do. But the economy stalls. The one thing that is common across all Catan games is you have a variety of different things you can purchase, and they all rest on recipes of different goods. And with very minor exceptions, you don't buy things with simply one type of good. And so, if the random influx of goods for several turns in a row doesn't involve stone or wheat or sheep or whatever, you have a whole bunch of turns in a row where someone says, anyone got any sheep to trade me? And everyone says, there hasn't been any sheep since 1926. Why do you keep asking? Pass the dice, your turn is over because you can't build anything. So on and so forth. And that is, not not only is it un- unsatisfying, it's just the game stalls. It's a stalled game and you're just waiting for something to happen, which is boring. Even if the game lasts 45 to 60 minutes, that is not compelling. However... There are a couple of things that Catan Starfarers does that changes with that fundamentally. One of them that I think is is definitely the most favorable is everyone can trade with the bank. In base Catan, in order to trade with the bank, you need to go and build something in particular. People don't tend to start with that. Whereas in Starfarers, you start with the ability to trade with bank. It's not efficient, it's not ideal, but it prevents the game from stalling because if you're a little clever and if you think flexibly enough, in other words, if you play the game well, you can see around the inefficiencies of the economy and manage to overcome them. So right off the bat, one of my key objections to base Catan is dealt with in Starfarers. Not only that, they also have these uh, things called trade goods. And they trade a lot, a lot better rate than normal goods. Like normal goods are three to one. And if you get a good run on trade goods, they, they trade in at two to one. So even more ways to get what you need. And less cleverly, but very effectively, when you're at the bottom end of the victory point track, you just draw random resources from the bank just to get things going. And oh my goodness, what a difference this makes. Now, it's not a pure upside because as we've already alluded to, Catan is basically one of the fundamental mechanisms of Catan is trading, trading the cards to accommodate for whatever economy shortfalls you have with somebody else's economy surpluses. Of course, that's no help when nobody has the thing in question at all. That's when I find it problematic. So it leads to people being a little bit more self-sufficient in terms of resources, which is not purely for the good, but it helps keep things moving, especially in the early game. And that's why I, I, I support the random influx of resources at the beginning of the game. It's true. I, I'm torn about this because I'm wondering if, if what Catan offers is the trading part, right? Because what, sure. what else is there really, right? And it really reduces that. I felt the games that we played, there wasn't really any demand on trading. I almost always had the resources that I needed. There was trading going on, but there wasn't even close to that sort of, you know, knowing what the other person had and knowing that you needed to get it. And it's like, okay, I'll give you four of this for that one thing that you've got. I just felt that, you know, it wasn't there. I hear you. And as I say, it's not a pure upside, but trading is still a way. Let me put it this way. Trading is no longer the thing you have to do in order to get anything built. Trading is now the way that a good player differentiates themselves from a mediocre player by virtue of seeing opportunities rather than just relying on on trying to be economically self-sufficient. So yes, trading is not as crucially important, but I think you're under I think you're you're minimizing the the, the amount of trading that happens in an average game of Starfarers. It's true. All right. So my one point here is that it's 20 years old, much like, it's just like Big City. Big City also came out in 1999. Catan came out, Seafair, uh, sorry, Catan Starfares came out in 1999. And I think it just, I think it's still playing like a 20 year old game. In what way? Well, just, well, just, be more specific. What, what are the short, shortcomings just, you're identifying? Just, now? just the, just the slowdown, like you said, and, and the fact that it's always the race to 15 points. It just doesn't, it's a very, you know, the big, there's not a big finish. It sort of just peters out. It's like, oh, okay, I got to 15 before anybody else did. It just, it, you know, just has that feel of of odd mechanisms. That's all. Of just rolling dice, you know what I mean? And you get what you want. And we've, we've talked about games like this, like uh, Wildlands, right? When it's your turn, you're pretty well just using the cards that you've got in your, you know what I mean? You're, you're locked into what you have in your hand. You're just using the cards that you've got. 
So your your options aren't huge there. It's like, okay, well, this is what I've got in my hand, so I guess this is what I'm going to be doing this turn. Okay, well, this actually ties into another one of my criticisms of Base Catan, which is in Base Catan, your economy, in many ways, is best at the very start of the game. You've already plotted out the best economic opportunities, and you've already put out your settlements next to the best producing locations. And your future settlements and your future upgrades are mostly just ancillary to that. You know, your next your next colony is not going to be as good as your first colony because you've already got the best numbers. But in Starfarers, rather than just starting out in this this hex grid and choosing your intersections there, you start out with one group of planets and then you move out and you colonize an entirely different group of planets. And so your economy does grow and develop in ways that I feel are more substantial in Starfarers than they are in Base Catan. You get new systems. You also get new toys. Although to a certain extent, you got that in Base Catan as well. And so you get to feel feel like the mid-game feels different than the beginning game, and it feels different from the late game. And furthermore, just returning back to this recurring issue of economic self-sufficiency, which you feel that uh, that Starfarers has, the economy changes. Like, for example, in our very last game, just as a specific example, at the beginning of the game, one resource was abundant, and you couldn't trade it away, and nobody, wa- uh, nobody wanted it. And then suddenly a weird thing happened in the mid-game based on the way the colonial development worked and based on a, a string of dice rolls which is, here's the virtue of the dice rolls, and then suddenly the economy desperately wanted more of that resource and it became very, very, very scarce. So I agree with you that the dice rolls are not ideal, but at least it's a way to modulate the influx of goods in this case so as to give contour to, again, to the trading. So let's talk about some other good points. The board, like you said, you just talked about how you go out and you conquer new planets. I really like how the board changes from the normal Catan. The fact that you get to move where the, all the trade planets are or the normal planets has got this really interesting inlay system that makes it modular, so almost every game will be different. So that's one of the changes between this edition in 2019 and the original version 1999. In 99, it was a fixed board. All the planets were in the same place every time. The numbers on which they produced resources changed, but the planets themselves didn't move. In the newer version, you can randomize the systems so that different resource planets show up in different places. That part, I think, is great. And it also, circling back to my last serious objection to Base Catan, which I think Starfarers addresses in a serious way, People have observed, and I think this is a bit of an exaggeration, but I think it points to a reasonably good truth. To a certain extent, you can lose base Catan during setup. If you don't, if you don't think about where you're going to set your next settlement and your next colony, your next city, and what have you, if you you can really build yourself into a corner, and it is possible that your fates are sealed just during the setup of your initial placements. In the context of this evolving universe that ha- that Starfarers has, kind of, sort of, by virtue of this expansion off to, to, to new planets, you do not have that problem. And I like what they did with uh, the tokens. It's much like the newer Catan. Like, in the old Catans, you flip, they're all, all the numbers were all black, and they're all the same size. In the newer version of Catan, the better numbers, which come up on the dice more often, like, you know, your sixes and your eights, they're red and bigger, and then this number slowly gets smaller based on, you know, the the times are going to roll. I like, you know, the fact that they included that in the game, in this game as well. The other thing I like about this is that not only are you trying to get stations where the numbers are so you can get more resources there's also these these trade planets that you can get to that will give you victory points and give you more uh abilities that help either get you you know faster or better guns or better resources and lets you get these interesting combos off it's not it's definitely not a 4x game it's not trying to be a 4x game but it nonetheless has a lot of the trappings that you look for in a science fiction game of this ilk. You kit out your mothership with new abilities and new pods. You make your stats better. You go out and you seek new territory, which in terms of your economy, and you get these new special abilities, which are kind of sort of like new texts that you research in other games. But here, what you do is you go and make contact with alien races, and then they give you special abilities. Well, speaking about pods and upgrades... Let's talk about these awesome ships that everybody gets. It's these, you know, six-inch plastic spaceships that you get to click on all these upgrades that you get. So you're going to click on engines, you're going to click on cargo bay pods, you're going to be clicking on weapons, and it makes it really easy just to look around the table and see what kind of upgrades everybody has. You're not, like, looking over at their sheet and trying to figure out, you know, what they've got. It's this giant miniature on it that... At a quick glance, you see what they have. And not only that, when it's your turn to do movement on the board, you do give it a little shake and it has this little clear, you know, exhaust on the bottom and, you know, the balls will drop down and you'll see, you know, 
depending on the color of the balls, it will tell you how far you're going to move. We'll get to that in a minute, Walker. Keep, keep it together. Keep your professionalism. Remember, you're an adult, Walker. We're all good. You're a grown man, Walker. <laughs> yes. So the toy factor, as we've commented before in this game, is massive. This is a very expensive game, but you know where your money is going because every player gets these wonderful toys that are functional. Functional toys are the best. It is, I think some of the best component moments in board games are when you have these lovely little functional toys. And they serve multiple functions. Not only do they communicate your stats, but they're also a randomization mechanism that is not susceptible to the same kind of blunt probabilistic analysis that board gamers can take for granted. Like, for example, the curve of probabilities of a 2D6. Um, so let's talk about their appearance briefly, because this is actually, I think, a serious issue. Legit. Okay. Legit. Because here, here's the thing. We are juvenile individuals. Walker and I are. And amongst our circle of friends, if we're playing with Huey, Dewey, and Louie, we will start making terrible, terrible jokes that we not that that are not worthy of even being referenced on air. But I have played this game in public, and people far more mature than I have pointed out, just spontaneously, without my making any jokes uh, in in their earshot, that the components are extremely phallic in nature. It's not just the mothership, but it's also your individual colony ships. It's the specific modules that you clip onto the colony ship. There's just a lot of it going on. And there's the shaking, and then there's, the, you know, the... Anyway, there's all... Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's so many, you know, references in this game that it's ridiculous. I will note, however, that for decades, the motherships of Starfires of Catan in 99 were infamous for their fragility. There were things that would break, uh, and even just putting on and taking off a given module would cause various clips to shatter. And for a few years, Cosmos tried to introduce various other buttress clips that would fix this or prevent that. Uh, but the new versions are very, very sturdy, and in point of fact, mechanically superior, because if you are inclined to do so, you can change the probability curve, not of the 2d6, there's nothing to be done for that, but you can change the probability curve of your what is effectively your movement role, which will influence a number of different things, you can just change the composition of the little colored balls that will drop out of your mothership. And that's kind of cool. I, we haven't done that. I don't know that I'd be inclined to, but it's in, it's nice to have the option. I, I might be inclined to take the black balls out of all the ships, but we'll talk about that later. Well, why don't we talk about that now? Because I don't want to. I okay. want to talk about the ships a little bit more. Okay. Just because we're, all, we're just talking about the ships and the bridge. Wait, wait, wait. We're, 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 we're proceeding conceptually rather than no, I from wanted, good points I to bad points? No, yeah, we are. Because we've already I'm so it. happy. I know. It's finally happened. I, all I want to talk about is that if you already own Star, uh, Catan Starfares, the older version, I still feel as though this is a purchase that you want to make. Because I remember playing the old one a lot and you're... You, at least I was, maybe not everybody, you are constantly worrying about breaking it. And a lot of us would just have the ship to the side and put the components beside it to show what we had. Because you're too worried about breaking the ship, because that's the thing that it did. There's no way this new one will break. Not only that, I've already talked about the modular board, how the plants are all mixed up. This also comes with a really uh, nice card tray where you put all all your cart, all the trade cards in. It has the... Uh, trade ratios embossed right on the on the sh on the thing so just quickly i have this uh, you know it was an end point that i had but if you already have star fairs or you have your group likes Catan, this is going to be a, a great change of pace and i think you should pick it up i don't know if i could cancel an upgrade for people who already have the, the 99 version only because of how incredibly expensive it is again i, I know where the money is going you're absolutely right a functional insert much more sturdy ships but if you are able to play with your ships without shattering them I think you can probably make do with your original copy. All right, where were we just about to go? You were about, about to talk to about into, the events. Into bats of, oh, the events. Oh, here we go. Events. Okay, so we talked about shaking up the the thing. Let's just talk about very quickly. You roll the dice, much like Catan. You get your resources. Everybody produces resources. Everything produces resources. Then you're going to be purchasing stuff with your resources. And then... At the end of your turn, you're going to be shaking your ship. Two balls will drop out. There could be a black ball or there could be uh, one of three other color balls. And that will give you your base movement plus how many little cool little thrusters you have on your ship. And that's how far all of your ships are going to move. They're all going to move that amount. You don't have to divide it up between your ships. That being said, a black ball might also drop from your ship. And if a black ball drops, it means you have a base movement of three and you get to flip over a event card. Which is going to be pirates, because <laughs> space is infinite, except for this particular area, 
where they can only come up with pirates. And this is not a joke. Almost 90% of the cards are pirates. Like, are it you, certainly seems are you, that way. Are you, are you seriously? You couldn't come up with more little stories or anything except pirates every time. You could almost call it anything. You could say a black hole. You could say a nebula. You could, you could have, Mark, you could have changed there it to are, anything. No, no, no. They're, they're, and okay. still had the same mechanic that the card, you know, same thing that the card did, but just not use pirates every time. So there's pirates, there's merchants, there's travelers, there's wormhole. Those are pretty much the four the four kinds of things. You, I will absolutely grant you 100% that this is a missed opportunity because they could do whatever they wanted with these event cards. And that is part of the joy because the event card is read by one of your neighbors and you're issued a series of binary choices and you don't know what the rough uh, what these specific parameters are. You know what the rough parameters are. Dealing with pirates is apt to be profitable but uh, will cost you fame. Fighting pirates might be dangerous, but might get you fame. Helping people out and being successful with that is good, you know. And and when pirates are involved, you want to have good blasters. And where wormholes are involved, you want to have good thrusters and all that, all that other stuff. And it's a way to introduce more player interaction because you're always testing your thruster capacity against the thruster capacity of a random player around the table. All of that is fine, but you're right in terms of how narrow the, the the sort of narrative contours are, it's somewhat repetitive. And that's unfortunate. That, and I feel it slows the game down, and all it is produces is random bull. Bull. Bull? Random bull. What kind of bull? Bull crap. Bull. <laughs> I kind of like the sense of mystery, but I do recognize that the variance is a little too high. And if you're behind the eight ball, as I've seen some people get... There are, I've seen some games where people just draw a disproportionate share of events, and they just seem to randomly end up choosing the wrong thing. Now, sometimes they're imprudent. Sometimes, you know, you have the weakest chip in, on the table, and you're like, fine, I'll fight that pirate. It's like, well, yeah, you're probably going to lose. That's not going to go well for you. You should know that. You should keep that in mind. But then sometimes just, you know, throughout, beyond any any bad decisions you've made, you end up just stuck with terrible, terrible events, and that is unfortunate. Now, the other thing is, is that, like we've talked about, there are trade planets out there and there are new resource planets out there. And it's sort of a race to get out to them. Now, would you concede that it's, it's roughly about 30 movement to get out to the furthest planet? Roughly about 30. Just say it doesn't, you don't have to be exact, but you know, would you concede? Now, <laughs> when you shake the di- the balls out, the average movement, I think is about five plus or minus, you know, so your average movement is going to be around seven. So it's going to be, be about three to four turns to get out to the furthest planet. There are event cards that will let you get there instantly. So if one person gets out there before anybody else, they're going to have their pick of all of these planets. And I just feel that that is an advantage, too much of an advantage. It's definitely advantageous. And like I said, I'm not going to dispute that some of the events are very good. It's just the the specific kind of outcome that you're talking about, namely the space warp, happens very seldom. And I have yet to see it completely hose somebody out of something that they worked hard towards getting. What I've seen it do is just give someone a leg up and help them get somewhere where they're already headed sooner. True. I I just feel that. So it sped up the game. It does. For that one person, they definitely have an advantage. I'm saying if someone was going for like, they wanted to have really fast ships, they're like, they dedicated their whole thing. I'm going to get to these fuel planets because I'm going to get a bunch of boosters on my ship because I want to be the first one out there. Look, I got I got six boosters. I'm going to get way out there. It's like, oh, you just pulled an event card. Oh, you're instantly out there. And I spent the whole front of my game, you know, working towards you're getting be, out there first. A player is going to be earning dividends on those extra booster capacity for the entire game. And the single warp, a single ah, space warp doesn't undermine that. I or suppose, that but I, I felt as though near the end of the game, you mo- your movement was so high that you almost got to where you were going regardless, you know. And But that's just... Anyway, so then why is the space war problematic if by the end no, of the game? No, by, ever... by the end of the game, well, because they, anyway, we'll move on <laughs> off these terrible, <laughs> terrible event cards. Let's go to randomness. Yes. Let's talk, we just talked about the balls dropping from the bottom of the ship. That's random. These yep. events that you're going to pull are random. We've talked about moving out to these planets to get more resources. And everyone knows how Catan works. You know, they all have numbers. But on these planets, you can't see the numbers. Well, no, that well, that's just it. We, you can. There are a bunch of different ways to play Starfarers in the new version. You can have the numbers be face down, 
or they can all be face up. The entire galaxy can be face up at the start of the game. Gotcha. Or everything can be face down at the start of the game. You might not even know what is out there. It could be completely empty space. It could be a trade outpost. It could be a colony system. You don't know. So you can tailor that level of uncertainty to your play group's preference. Gotcha. So that, but it is yet another uh, point of. Randomness. It's another potential point of randomness, yes, and this is on top of, of course, the production rolls. Yeah, I was going to say the the and the the, yeah the dice and the free resources. The card draws that you pull, yes. So lots of randomness. There's a lot. There's a lot of luck. My general experience has been that good play will nonetheless triumph at the end because there's enough going on and enough ways to write out the randomness. And to a certain extent, your job, good play in a Catan game, is to deal with the fluctuations in the economy. Because fundamentally, this is a game about building stuff with the economic output that is in front of you. And you can mitigate that through trading. You can mitigate that through a variety of smart calls. But I will grant you there's a fair amount of variance, yes. In normal Catan, if you rolled a seven, there was no number sevens on the board. Number seven means you'd move the thief... And you would blocking be a production blocking node. a production node. I would argue in Starfarer's Gantan, uh, rolling a seven is bad for you. Oh yeah, because not only do you get no income at the beginning of your turn, there was never any t- there was never any problems. Like in in my opinion, I never had a problem staying at seven cards or less. So the the biggest difference. I mean, I, I don't mind that rolling a seven is unfortunate for a person rolling a seven because it got rid of the thing that I hated most about rolling a seven in base Catan, which is it slows the game down for everybody because it blocks the production numbers. So you just sit the robber on top of a six or an eight that is producing for your enemies and not for you. And now everyone's boned until seven gets rolled again and just moves back and forth between the number of spaces. By getting rid of that, I think they did a good job. Now, could they have done something more interesting with a seven? Yes, absolutely. But it's at least preferable to its forebears. I just felt there was some interesting combos with the Catan cards. Because remember, there was the the Monopoly cards where you could like sort of steal, you know, use the robber. Because not only in this game, because you also stole in the in normal Catan, you'd steal a card from the person that you put the note on. Yes. In this one, everybody else gets a card, you know. So not only but you still you, you still, still steal one, but everyone gets one anyway. So yes. you know, it doesn't really punish anybody. In normal Catan, you could have a Monopoly card. So you steal a card, and then you you know what they've sort of what you've given them, and then you just you know been do Monopoly on that. Or you there was that awesome mechanic where you stole not a mechanic, but you said you know you stole a card from them. It was like the very coveted forest card. No one had wood, and then you tra- you, know, you traded their own card back to them. And that was that was I never felt that ever happened in Starfares. I agree. There is no take that. In Starfarers of Catan, and that's one of the <laughs> that is one of the ways in which I prefer it to the original versions. I felt normal Catan was more had a little bit of area control in it, right? You'd be cutting people off at the roads, you'd be blocking nodes because they had to, the little settlers had to be so far apart, so you could sort of maneuver, so you know you could keep people away. I never felt that that was a thing you could do in in Starfarers. It's it's true, but this goes back to one of my earlier complaints. For the despite the fact that Catan base Catan is heralded as some sort of great gateway game, you can lose the game during setup, and if you're not able to figure out the pathing properly, you can just get boned. Very, very, very early on in the game, if somebody builds roads aggressively, that it, that's it. You can be effectively out. So the fact that that doesn't exist in this version, again, I think is an upside. So this is this next point. It, it's the same in normal Catan as well. I think what's I think it's even probably worse than normal Catan because normal Catan is a game till to ten, is it not? Yes. So in terms of the game length, this is a- absolutely one of my criticisms as well. Catan Starfarers is a lot of Catan. We're talking about ninety to one twenty minutes, solid. And the game ends more precipitously than you might think because the the economy tends to snowball. It takes you a while to get to, say, 11 points, and you figure, oh, it's going to be forever to get to 15. But then suddenly, yes, as you ramp up, you're getting a point every turn or every other turn, and so it's very easy to get to the end. But it's still going to be one of the longest, if not the longest, of the core Catan games at roughly two hours with four players, which is going to be too much Catan for a lot of people. True. So the thing I have here is there's a four-point swing. It'd be, it's, that'd be, that's, the road is awful in normal Catan because it's a four point swing. If it's between you and, and the second place person, you're losing po- two points. They're gaining two points. That's a four point swing in a 10 point game. That's terrible. I think it's terrible in a 15 point game. So, because 
uh, there's a mechanism where we're talking about the trade planets. When you take a trade planet, you get the little uh, alien standee, and that gets you two points. And whoever has the most, uh, you know, whoever's traded the most with these planets gets, uh, you know, their influence and therefore has the two points for the different trade systems that are out there. Yeah, the amount of competition that one sees over the various alien, they're called friendship bonuses. The amount of competition you see over the various alien friendship bonuses is occasionally unsatisfying, but I tend that, that, I find that tends to be with experienced players playing against less experienced players. With more experienced players, again, where the, where there's a little bit more latitude in the economy and a little bit better ability to pivot and take advantage of opportunities, you do see a little bit more competition over those things. But yes, it is a large point swing. All right. I got some, that's all my bad points. I think I got some good points that we missed. All not only is this giant spaceship that you've got as your you know your upgrade ship, even the the pieces on the board are great. You know you're toting around, either you're moving around a little trade station or your settling station, and the ships look cool. And you put this ring around it to make it a a, a big space station. It's great. The game's got great flow, much like normal Catan. You roll your two d six, you get your resources, you build next player's turn. I think it goes around the table fairly quickly. So to sum up. For a long time, Catan Starfarers has been my preferred version of Catan. But, as has been made clear over my comments, and as well as Walker's objections, to which I don't really have any substantive objection to, I might mitigate or, or I might quibble about some of the details, there are some shortcomings. And again, 90 to 120 minutes, that's a lot of Catan to be done. But, there is something fundamentally appealing to me about the core Catan formula of a variable economy that produces a set of goods for which you must use to satisfy set recipes to get specific toys. And the salient differences with the different Catan versions are how the economy works, what you're buying, and what the overall backdrop is. And for all of those details, I think Catan Starfarers is just about perfect. You get to buy fun things. You get to do fun things with those things that you buy. And although the trading isn't emphasized as much as I might like, it nonetheless keeps the game moving. And especially in a game that might last a full two hours, you definitely want things to keep moving and you do not want things to stall. So anytime I play a Catan game that is not Catan Starfarers, I want to be playing Starfarers of Catan. And I do enjoy the game. It's not going to be for everybody. You know, the people who like Catan primarily because of how accessible it is, Starfarers is a little bit of a jump in complexity. Now, the rules explanation is incredibly brief. I've explained the game a bunch of times over the past couple of weeks. It is very, very, very short. And it's very accessible for that, but if you're talking about people who are strictly intro gamers and they just want to play what they're accustomed to, maybe it might be too much of a jump. But as a more gamerly version of Catan, for people who are slightly more to the hobbyist angle, I do think that Catan Starfarers has a lot going for it, and I think it is still worth playing even 20 years on. So with all its caveats, with all its weaknesses, I still enjoy it. I don't necessarily think that it's a top-tier game, but as far as the Catan games go, it is my favorite, my preferred version. That is that is so odd, because I have exactly the opposite point written right here. What's that? It is great for non-gamers. I just feel as though that that non-gamers would just have more fun with this, that they wouldn't be racing for the victory points. They'd just have more fun playing it and doing the trading and doing the exploring and, and having fun with upgrading their ship and not worrying about getting points every single turn or trying to keep up with, you know, this one person that's, you know, racing ahead. I just think they'd have more fun playing it. I'm, I'm not... Okay, two things. First of all, that sounds like a two-and-a-half to three-hour version of Catan. I'm not, which... saying, I'm not saying it would be shorter or anything else. I'm just saying that the actual gameplay would be would be more... Sure, but I, I don't know that it would hold their attention for that long. I don't know that it would hold anyone's attention for that long because I don't think the, 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 the mechanisms and the core structure could warrant a playing of, of that duration. But I'm not saying that it's not accessible to non-gamers. What I'm saying is, is that if people are particularly attached to the core version of Catan and want to play it dozens of times over, and I know people like this, then I don't think that Catan Starfarers is going to be an easy sell because it is different and it does change the formula in some relatively substantial ways, ways in spite of and sometimes because of its superficial similarities to the core, the core structure. It, it is nonetheless very accessible, and I would nonetheless seek to try to introduce people who are particularly big on Catan to this. I'm just saying it's not necessarily going to work for everybody. Gotcha. I would not play Starfarers of Catan. 
sorry, I would not play Catan Starfarers unless it was the only option. I I just think I it has everything in about Catan that I don't like. I just don't enjoy Catan anymore. It was great twenty years ago, but there's just so much there's so much better out there that I I don't want to go back to that. So that's going to do it for this week. Thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And if you like this podcast, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.